0: take our bibles let's open to isaiah 7 and i'm going to give you some intro notes so that we get our bearings about where we are but we're going to start in isaiah 7 when we get to the bible it'll be just a little bit give you an opportunity to turn there i'm in no uh hurry uh, to get through this material quickly we've got about 45 minutes i think that we can do it um You may not get this concept that I'm going to explain to you immediately, okay? But what we are talking about is we are talking about the church. But in order to understand the significance of the church, before we ever get to the idea of the church, we've got to understand where the church is in God's plan for history. God's plan for history has been folded out in a series of economies known as dispensations, Now, if you are a member of Grace Bible Church, one of our foundational things in our Constitution is dispensational revelation. Let me explain to you what dispensation is real quick, if you weren't here for last week. The idea is that it is God's authority to rule or to set boundaries or parameters for how he handles history. We're going to get more into it as the weeks go. But it's essentially how God wants to run his economy and the responsibility that he entrusts to human beings to respond to how he has revealed himself. Is everybody with me? Yes? Shake your head no if you're not. I'm here to clarify whatever. Okay, so so stick with me here. In order to understand that, Bible interpretation becomes a big deal. It becomes a very big deal. In fact, we have our technical $10 word for it called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible interpretation. Now, some of you have this down from last time. Here's the reason why it is a science, because there are certain rules that need to be followed whenever you're interpreting any passage. You and I are not going to read poetry in the same way that we're going to read just a narrative section where history is unfolding. You just don't read them the same. When you deal with something like prophecy... That's a completely another thing all on its own. But the basic rules of hermeneutics don't change. Bible interpretation, it doesn't change. And here are the two facets. Number one, plain literal. It means what it says. It's the normal, obvious meaning. Would any of you ever pick up a book that you read apart from the Bible and say, you know what, it says moon here, but I think it's really talking about Jupiter. Anybody do that? No, we don't naturally do that. But you would be surprised that when people pick up the Bible, they lose their minds and they reinterpret all kinds of crazy things, much of which we're going to see next week is the idea. The second point is figurative literal. Even though there's a figure of speech that's being used in some way, it doesn't change the fact that there is a literal meaning on the other side of it. That the idea of using a figure of speech is actually trying to communicate a point that everybody needs to understand. So when we see a whole idea, like Luke chapter 12, when it says that those that don't know will receive a few lashes, and we sit here and we go, oh my gosh, well, let me ask you this, and you might not have this expression here, but in Kentucky would say, boy, that just chaps my hide. Does that mean that somebody is literally chapping my hide? I hope not. But what does it mean? it means it gets my goat, right? Does that help you or any? See how I use two of them there? There we go. What does it mean if something chaps your hide or gets your goat? What's that mean? It means it frustrates you. It means it steam smoke is getting ready to pour out of your ears. You're getting ready to lose your mind over something because you're just like, oh, figure of speech. So notice those things aren't literally happening. But even though it's painted in a figurative language, it's got a literal meaning on the other side of it. Now, with that in mind, we progress to this next point that's important. There is only one interpretation to any given text of Scripture. There are not many interpretations. In fact, if you're taking notes, just write this, one interpretation to any text. There's only one now, if you're in hermeneutics, this is a refresher. If you're in hermeneutics, courses, course, this is a refresher for you. Every person who's a believer in Christ needs to know this. You say, why in the world do I need to know this? Because you're a believer. Because you have God's inspired word where he has actually spoken to us. And if we don't handle it properly, we're going to run into all kinds of silly things. You don't believe me? Why are the Jehovah's Witnesses knock door to door? They think they're one of the 144,000 or at least they're trying to get into that margin. Well, since there's more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, what do they have the option to do? Well, let's just spiritualize that number. It's not really 144,000. It's just kind of a round number that maybe means a whole lot of people. Everybody see how loose we get with the text? I don't know about you, but if I'm a believer in Christ, I want to know exactly what God has to say to me so I can live a faithful life. So this is why this is going to be important to us. There's only one interpretation in any given scripture, and that interpretation is exactly What the biblical author wrote at the moment that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What Daniel wrote, when Daniel wrote it, was exactly what that passage means. It doesn't mean anything else except what Daniel wrote. Daniel determines the meaning. John determines his meaning. When Jesus speaks... That's why we use context and we go through and we study it out and we try to grab all these clues because Jesus means exactly what he says. Wouldn't you be a little scared if Jesus didn't mean what he said? That would be a little difficult. I mean, was he not betrayed? Was he not arrested, put on trial, crucified by sinners and rose from the third day? What if Jesus didn't really mean that? Would your salvation be in question? It would be. And notice, that's a whole different thing. Sometimes we question our salvation because we can't believe how evil we are. Now we would be questioning our salvation because we're not for sure Jesus told us the truth about the crux of our faith. Anxiety sets in. Good grief, I might not really be saved because Jesus might not have really died. How come Jesus only meant that one thing literally, but something else he said he didn't really mean literally? Everybody see? Who chooses? And when you come to the point where you're the one who makes the choice you now have put yourself as the authority over the text. You and I have no authority over the text. Only the biblical author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has authority over the text. Aren't you glad you came to church today? So here, amen. I love it. If you're amening hermeneutics, we've done something here. That's great. So notice, (laughs) Walt. You give Mitch those charismatic buttons, he doesn't know what to do. All right. While there may be many applications that can come from a passage, its interpretation is one. Or, if you want to just shorthand these notes, one interpretation, many applications. Simple concept. One interpretation, many applications. And that's what we're going to look at today. Let's go to the next one. Here's Charles Ryrie. Dispensationalism claims to be a help in supplying the answer to the need for biblical distinctions and offering a satisfying philosophy of history and in employing a consistently, here it is, normal principle of interpretation. Literal, plain, normal. That's the idea. We read the Bible as you would any book. Just because it's a supernatural book doesn't mean that you seek for some mystical, supernatural way of reading it. God wants to be understood. And so he made it as plain as day. That's what makes it so convicting. God is often so clear, it hurts. These are basic areas in proper understanding of the Bible. That's why we're going over it. If dispensationalism has the answers, then it's most helpful tool in consistent biblical interpretation. If not, it ought to be minimized and discarded. And that's really how you know what truth is. If it's consistent all the way throughout the text, then you know it's got to be true because you can't find a flaw or a stretch for it anyway. And that's why when you see all 66 books as a whole, you can't just be studying three verses all by itself. You got to ask the question, well, how does this fit in the paragraph? How does this fit in the chapter? How does this fit in the scene? How does this fit in the book? How does this fit in the New Testament? How does this fit in the overall scope of scripture? Anybody inspired to study right now? I hope so. How about the next one? This is actually from our doctrinal statement. We believe that the scriptures are to be interpreted in their natural and literal sense. Now, I know this sounds like, well, duh, of course you're supposed to do it that way. But I promise you, not everybody gets that. We'll talk about that next week. Thus, they reveal certain divinely determined dispensations or rules of life. Three of these, the age of the law, the age of the church, and the age of the millennial kingdom are subjects of detailed revelation in scripture. In other words, we have a wealth of knowledge about those three economies that God has set up. But notice the consistent idea here, literal, normal, plain interpretation, reading it for what it says. Mitch, let's go to the next one. Dispensationalism is a consistent approach that interprets the Bible in a normal way. Plain, literal fashion, which still allows for symbols and figures of speech and views the scriptures as an entire cohesive unit that fits together perfectly. Consistent literal interpretation is the defining crux issue that determines whether or not one is a dispensationalist. Now, here's what, I, here's, here's what I'm not advocating. Well, I've got to be this in order to understand the Bible this way. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that when you read the Bible for what it plainly says, and you let it just unfold itself from Genesis to Revelation, you will become a dispensationalist. You can't help it. And the reason is, is because it reveals four things. If you want to write them down in shorthand, I'm going to give you four things, and we're just going to deal with number one today so you can see how it works. This understanding leads to dispensation see number one, the Old Testament stands on its own. What Bible did Jesus use? King James? Depends on who you talk to, right? <laughs> That's sad. What Bible did he use? Old Testament. That's what he had to go off of when he was tempted by Satan. Anybody know where he quotes from? Deuteronomy. Can you quote from Deuteronomy if you were dealing with Satan? obviously you can that's good that's good if you can obviously i'm just going to say what jesus said that's what it is there's the little trick obviously jesus understood that the old testament had authority because he used it when satan dared to try to tempt him so jesus attests that it has power the old testament can stand on its own the authority of meaning belongs to the original author If Moses wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then whatever Moses meant is its meaning, nothing else. The Old Testament, and here's where the problem lies. In fact, if you've ever heard of Reformed or Covenant theology, anybody ever heard of this? Reformed or Covenant theology is what butts heads with the dispensationalists, and here's the reason why. The Old Testament does not need the New Testament in order to reinterpret the Old Testament. They'll say, oh, well, well, here's what's going on here, but really what that means is when the New Testament quotes this, it's giving me what the Old Testament author really meant. What that tells me is, is you can't trust anything on the Old Testament unless you have the New Testament. Does that make sense? You've got to have the New Testament in order to understand the Old Testament. What did they do before 100 AD when this stuff was written? That makes no sense at all. So now, the second thing you'll come to, and again, we're going to get to these later, The ultimate goal of all history is the glory of God. That seems pretty obvious to me. It's not salvation. Salvation is only one part of everything that leads to the glory of God. Number three, an undeniable distinction between God's plan for the nation of Israel and God's plan for the church. Now, this shouldn't be hard, guys. How many times is the word church brought up in the Old Testament? Zero. Not once. How many times do you think that Israel is brought up in the Old Testament? The official count is a gazillion, okay? So we know that the Old Testament, just for basic understanding, the Old Testament talks a lot about the nation of Israel. We know that. In fact, how many times, and I've already given you this answer, so we'll see how well you're listening, right? How many times is the word church brought up in the Gospels? Three. Once in Matthew 16, twice in Matthew 18, and Jesus is speaking about it both times about a future time to come. Now that's interesting, Jesus sets the precedence for a brand new thing called the church. So notice that even Jesus understands there's a distinction between Israel and the church. You read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll come to that natural conclusion for yourself as well. The last one, an expectation that the promises made to Israel will be literally fulfilled and remain unaltered. In fact, what we're going to talk about next week is something called replacement theology. And this is the idea that the church, now that Jesus is doing something with the church, He doesn't need Israel anymore. He doesn't need Israel at all. And so what's going to happen is, is the church is actually the new Israel or spiritual Israel. And they are now the people of the redeemed. And they are now taking on uh, their promises and they're moving forward. Funny how they don't want to take on their cursings, but they want to take on their blessings. Now, we happen to have the prized privilege of having Lynette Scharf with us today. I'm sorry to point you out. But let's be honest. Isn't it this last conviction that really drives you and Paul to do what you do with Friends of Israel? Absolutely. Whole ministries are centered around this entire idea because it gets so messed up and everybody thinks the church is the end-all be-all. God has a plan for Israel. They may not be in the position of privilege right now, but he has a future plan for them. If you read the Bible literally, plainly, normally, you'll see it now. In case you've got a hand cramp right now because you're writing, the slides are going to be up on the website, okay? They're going to be up on the website. Mitch did an awesome job last week of putting them up there. Let's move on to the next one. Here's the question with goes with number one. How should we understand the New Testament use of the Old Testament? Sometimes you're reading along in the New Testament, and the great thing about the New American Standard Version is is it will give you Old Testament quotations all in caps. And you sit here and you go, yeah, this is good stuff. Wait a second. What in the world is he talking about? Why did he have to throw this Old Testament stuff in here and now I'm all confused about how this matters here? And then you go back and you look at the Old Testament you go, wait a second, that's not what they're saying in the Old Testament at all. Why is he using that here? We're gonna answer that question today because it's important to understand how to navigate through those things. You will understand God's word much, much better. There are two points to look at. Number one is called the literal treatment. When an Old Testament prophecy finds literal fulfillment in the new testament let me give you a second to write that down it's so important that you get this literal treatment when an old testament prophecy finds literal fulfillment in the new testament does anybody need a pen i have a grace bible church pen here it's not made of gold but i have breathed on it i think i had it in my mouth a little bit so does might need it okay let's make making sure everybody's like yeah no no Literal treatment. When an Old Testament prophecy finds literal fulfillment in the New Testament. Now, we look at what we've got here in Isaiah 7. Okay, so let's look at this real quick. Look at Isaiah 7, look at verse 14. You're going to go, oh yes, I know this. And it makes me so excited about Christmas. Yay, here we go. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name... Emmanuel, everybody see that? Here's an Old Testament prophecy that's set up. Now, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter one. Let's get into the New Testament. And remember, we are looking at this because this is an example of a literal treatment of an Old Testament text used in the New Testament. Luke chapter one. And let's start in verse 30. Here's what it says. The angel said to her, speaking to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor, you found grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him a throne The throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, Watch what she says. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Everybody, see the answer there, the reply. And notice that Isaiah 7 14 gives you that conclusion. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Everybody see that it's literal. We didn't have to twist anything, turn anything, make anything, say anything that it wasn't. It's just the fact of the virgin will have a child. You will call him Emmanuel. Here's the pronouncement given by the angel that this is going to happen. And Mary's question centers around the centers not sinners centers around the fact of how am I going to have this child? I've never known somebody. And of course he tells him, you know, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and come upon you. That's the way it's going to happen. Does it fulfill the prophecy? Does it? It does. Does it fulfill it literally? It does. Everybody see that? It's a literal treatment. Now, here's the second way to understand Old Testament passages used in the New Testament. This is called inspired application. I've watered it down a little bit from hermeneutics class so that we can understand it a little bit better. Inspired application. In other words when a New Testament author is going to use a section of the Old Testament to deal with it, and it doesn't seem like it matches up. It's not because he's interpreting it for you. That's not what he's doing. Instead, he's taking that passage and he is applying it to his current situation. So when an Old Testament verse or passage is used in the New Testament, but the New Testament meaning seems to differ from the original author's meaning in the Old Testament, he is applying it. Remember what we said, meaning of any text is how many? One. Yeah, just look at my fingers, I'll tell you. Okay, one. But how many applications can you have? Many, a lot. One meaning many applications. Now let's see an example of this. Let's take our Bibles, turn to Hosea 11. Anybody been hanging out in Hosea lately? No? Might be some good devotional place to go. Hosea. If you're like me, all the minor prophets are jammed together in your Bible. You hit one and you miss them all. You went from Daniel to Matthew in no time. Hosea 11:1. Hosea 11:1. If you got to look at the table of contents to find it, there's no shame in that. It's okay. We're all learning. We're all learning. Not a big deal. Hosea chapter 1. Look what it says. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Stop. Who did God love? Are you sure? You sure? Okay, just want to make sure that you see what the normal, plain, literal reading of this text is, okay? Look what it says. And out of Egypt I called my son. Who's that talking about? Oh, tell me you didn't make that mistake. What does the context say? Israel. How do we know this? Well, look at it. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. This is what is known as a parallelism in Scripture. And what this is, is notice that youth and son, they parallel one another. What, here's what's interesting. What parallels love? Anybody know? What parallels love? He's essentially stating the same thing in two different ways. What parallels love here, do we know? Out of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, that's how I loved him. I called my son, son and youth. That's the idea. This passage is about Israel. In fact, if you go back to Exodus chapter four, you find that one of the things that Moses is commanded to say to Pharaoh is, let my son go. Is Moses talking about Jesus there? No, No, he's talking about Israel. See, it's interesting. So now here's a question. We now take this and we move forward to Matthew chapter two. Go to Matthew two. Again, just flip with your thumb, you're right there. Now, this is whenever the death of the firstborn was sent out. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, baby Jesus, baby Jacob, Jesus, all flee to Egypt. I'm going to keep that going for a while. And look at verse 15. Matthew 2, verse 15. He remained there, remained in Egypt, until the death of Herod, that's who was seeking the life of the firstborn. This was to fulfill... What had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Wait a second, what were they talking about in Hosea? Who was the son? Israel. Who's the son here? Jesus. You say, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. Why was it Israel in the Old Testament and it's Jesus in the New Testament? Because what the author wrote in the Old Testament stands. You don't need the New Testament to reinterpret it. And Matthew is not interpreting for you what Hosea 11.1 1 really, truly, deeply, spiritually means. That's not what it is. A literal plain reading of Hosea 11.1 1 says this is Israel. And Matthew takes that same concept, one meaning, many applications, and he applies that idea to this. In the same way, out of Egypt, God called his son. Does everybody see how that works? That is an inspired application. The New Testament authors are inspired by the Holy Spirit, just as the Old Testament authors are, but they're not reinterpreting the Old Testament for you to tell you what it really, truly means. They are simply applying those concepts in an inspired way and making application of their current situation. Does that make sense? Do we get that? No, it doesn't. Okay, talk to me, talk to me. let's clear this up yeah i'm I'm okay with you guys talking let's what, what is it what is it? Tell me help me help me, help you, help me help you help <laughs> me, help you mhm in fifteen, 15. mhm mhm- you could connect it like that, but notice we're talking about two separate historical instances. And the first one that Hosea is talking about, it's the time of the Exodus, yes? we Remember that? Yes or no? Do we not know? Yes, Yes, that's what it is, exactly. Now, here's what you would have to conclude if you're saying that what Matthew is writing here is actually a real interpretation of what's going on. What you have to say is, is that, no, it wasn't really Israel who came out of Egypt. That may have happened. But what really came out of Egypt was Jesus back in Exodus. See, we would never say that, would we? Because the plain, literal, normal reading of Exodus... Doesn't have Jesus on it at all. Jesus' name is never even brought up there. But did the nation of Israel come out of Egypt? Yes. Did Jesus have to apply the blood and so be set free? Did he have to do that? No, he didn't sin. So we can't conclude that he is in part and parcel with that. Just because he came out of Egypt doesn't mean that we get to read that into the text. What Matthew is doing is essentially saying in the same way that Israel came out of Egypt... So in this point, now that Herod is dead, God is calling his son out of Egypt back to, and they actually end up going to Galilee, to Nazareth. Does that help make sense? He would be an awful old baby if that was the case. He was in the Exodus. You're correct. Your humor is amazing. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. Let me take you back to where we started with all of this, to 1 Peter. But we're actually going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through this. You're not going to believe anything I say. Go ahead and lay it out there for you. But what I'm going to ask you to do is to make notes. This is why I want everybody taking notes today. I want you to make notes. When you get to 1 Peter 2, I'm going to wait for the pages to stop flipping there. Okay? Because as soon as you're done, I want you to raise your right hand. Raise your right hand. I solemnly swear. All of you put your hands down. That's terrible. Raise your right hand. We're doing this for Jesus. I solemnly swear that I will look over these notes and I will spend time with the Lord who loved me and gave his son for me and asked for the Holy Spirit to teach me this point. See, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you didn't raise your hand, I question your salvation. See me after church. All right. First Peter Chapter two, let's look at verse one. I'm going to walk through this, explain concepts that are going on, but there's a lot of quotation from the Old Testament. Now, instead of you having to flip back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, that's sometimes when I study and I'm doing those things, I just get out two Bibles. It's much easier that way, but I'm going to have the passages up on the screen to show you. So when I call them out, Mitch is going to throw them up there. You can mark them down next to the verse that's going on, and we're going to talk about literal treatment and inspired application, okay? And this is a good passage in order to do this. Chapter two, verse one, bless you. Therefore, putting aside all malice, all wickedness, depravity is the idea, and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now he's writing to Christians right here. Get rid of all that stuff in your life is what he's saying, okay? Identify it for what it is. Anything that is evil and impure, forsake it. Get it out of here. And watch what he says here, verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. Why is that? Look what it says. So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. By intaking the word of God. Notice what he's saying. Identify evil things in your life. Make a list if you have to. And then repent, essentially. Change how you're thinking that those things would possibly be okay or that, well, those are acceptable sins. It's all right. No, it's not. Get that stuff out of here and now crave God's word. Why? Because when you crave God's word and when you're feeding on it regularly, it will actually grow you up or some translations I think say make you wise unto salvation and that's not just talking about go to heaven when you die that's already a done deal for these people we're talking about being sanctified as you walk with the lord and we're talking about our glorification to come when we will be with him always paul wants us to be smart people when it comes to this situation look at verse three if you have tasted the kindness of the lord now notice i don't think if there means like "Mm, maybe maybe not I think what he's actually talking there is, since you've done this, since you know the Lord is good, why would you not want to go to him? Why would you not want to seek this growth from him and his word? Look at verse four. And coming to him as to a living stone. Now, here's one reason why I want you to mark this is because we're going to return to it later when we're dealing with the church. Jesus Christ is pictured here as a living stone. Okay? Does everybody find that odd? That's kind of like when everybody was selling my pet rock years ago. Everybody remember that? That was odd. A living stone. Anybody own a living stone? No. no. Some people's last names are living stone. But as far as actually being a living stone, that you're saying, what is wrong with Peter? What's he doing here? Well, he's giving you the idea of a steadfast thing that will never leave, but also that is very much alive. Now watch this. And coming to him as, a, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones. Now notice that. Not only is Christ the living stone, you and I as believers in Christ, who have not rejected him like other people have, we are living stones as well. Does everybody see this, how it goes together? Yes? 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 If you're excited, say amen. Okay, good. Throw it up there, Mitch. Let's see it one time. Can you do it? No? Okay, there you go. Yeah, thank you. All right. Sometimes you got to have fun. Verse five. You also as living stones, now watch this, are being built up. And what's interesting is that's actually in the passive in the Greek. Let yourselves Be built up. The intaking of the word of God, like a baby with milk, will build you up. He is a living stone. We are living stones. And notice when he talks about the idea of letting us be built up by him, he's developing a structure. Yes, does everybody see this? It's like a building that he's putting together, a building full of living stones. He says here, being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now you may say, what in the world just happened in this verse? We're going to deal with this later because this deals with the concept of the priesthood of the believer. We're not going to deal with it now, okay? So just put it back in your memory banks. If you want to write, Jeremy promised he'd deal with this later. That way you hold me accountable. That's fine, your margin, okay? Verse four, here it is. For this is contained in scripture. Uh Uh-oh, Peter's going to quote the Old Testament. Here he goes. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, right here, you want to write next to it, Isaiah 28. And Mitch, I think I've given you 15 through 17 there, just so we have some surrounding context. If you wouldn't mind, go there real quick. Let's see what it says. Because you've said we made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have made a pact The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by for we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. In other words, Israel is saying we're straying from everything that's true and good about God and instead we're going to lie our way out of a situation. We're going to practice evil so we won't be so heavily persecuted is the idea. Somehow cheating and doing wrong is going to get them out from under responsibility's sake. Does that ever work? No, that violates the very definition of truth. But look what it says next. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. What we just read here. A tested stone. Notice in your passage, it says a choice stone. A tested stone. A costly cornerstone for the foundation. Firmly placed. And he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Will not be alarmed. Will not be made to hurry. Notice in our passage here, it says... And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. What is going on here? This is a literal treatment about Christ coming, even though it uses figurative language. Look at verse 17 here. In verse 17, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret places. In other words, anywhere that you try to hide, notice the figurative language, anywhere that you try to hide, righteousness and justice are going to get you whenever this measuring stone or this choice stone of God has been laid. This is a literal treatment of this passage. It is speaking of when Jesus comes to settle accounts with people. So if that is the case, if we with the living stone are living stones and we're being built up in that way, go back to your passage here in first Peter chapter two, notice what it says. We're being built up for a reason, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. We're going to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And why is that? Because the chief cornerstone is present. He's here. He matters now, and he sets the measuring lines of justice and righteousness. That's the reason why we can't any longer try to hide away in lies and things like that. That's what Israel said they were going to do. We're just going to lock arms with everything that's wrong and sing Kumbaya and hope that we're okay. It's not going to happen. Jesus won't let it happen. So this is a literal treatment of this idea. I don't believe it. You already swore that you would go back and look at it. Verse 7. This precious value then is for you who believe. Everybody remember that in verse 4? You who believe. Not those that were rejected him. The ones who believe him. Notice what it says here. But to those who disbelieve. uh Uh-oh. Now we're going to flip the tables negative. Look what it says. The stone which the builders rejected. That's back in verse 4. Rejected by men. This became the very cornerstone. Now, Stop there for just a second. This became the very cornerstone. Mitch, throw up Psalm 118, verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22. Put it together with this real quick. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. And you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Next one. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, Jesus is the convicting treatment for those who have chosen not to believe in him. Even though they reject him, it doesn't change the fact of who he is. He's still the chief cornerstone. Doesn't matter what somebody thinks about him. This is a good principle. It does not matter what we think. The truth is always true. And that's the point that he's getting here. For those people who chose to disbelieve, or let me back this up. With the first instance, for those who believe... He is the stone-laden Zion. He is our righteousness. And we should glory in that. Why? Because it's all about him. It's not about us. And to that I can say, amen, awesome. But for those who don't believe, there's trouble. There's trouble. And why is that? Well, go back to to, uh, 1 Peter 2. Look what it says. The stone which the builders rejected, that's what happened here, those who don't believe. This became the very cornerstone. It's almost like, and of course nobody would ever do this, you played the lottery, but your last number was off by one. 24, 16, 92, 31, 17, and you had 18. You were off. And so therefore you missed the grand boat of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ because you didn't believe. You didn't think it was worth it at the time. You didn't value the gospel message that was set before you. Does that make sense to everyone? So now let's move forward in this. And verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now here's what's interesting about this, Mitch. Isaiah 8 verse 14, if you want to write this down. Look what it says. Here's 13 through 15. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. We talk about living in fear in this present age. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike, and a rock to stumble over, and a snare, and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Last one here. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. You say, okay, what in the world is going on? Let me tell you here. In this passage in Isaiah 8, this was originally used of Yahweh becoming a sanctuary for those who regard him as holy and who receive him or reverence him alone. But there were people in Israel and Judah who did not regard Yahweh in this way, and they stumbled over the only protection that they had in Yahweh making himself available. That's what happened in the Old Testament context when this was written down by Isaiah. But if you look, Peter is actually using it and he has switched to an implied, applied interpretation or inspired application of this. And he is now saying here, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's clearly applied to Christ as being a stumbling block for those who do not believe. Does everybody see that? Yes. Who fell asleep? Just making sure I'm yelling loud enough. Hopefully you guys will stay awake. Stick with me on this. Okay. You'll get it. Now let's move on. For They stumble. Because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. Or in other words, those are the consequences that happen to those who do not believe. Verse nine, but you, speaking to believers again. Now watch this. You are number one, a chosen race. Number two, a royal priesthood. Number three, a holy nation. Number four, a people for God's own possession. Stop there. Those four things that are brought up are all used to speak of Israel in the Old Testament. In every passage that you go to, it always, every time, has Israel as its focus of who they're speaking about. Let me show you real quick. Deal with number one, a chosen race. Mitch, Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. You're a holy people. Now everybody remember the holy people that we just saw? Keep that in mind for this as well. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The next one. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were fewest of the peoples. No, no. They were a chosen race. Does everybody see that? Now, in that passage in Deuteronomy, is it speaking about Israel or the church? Speaking about Israel. So why does Peter use it for the church in this passage? Anybody know? Because he's not telling you the meaning of the Old Testament. He's giving you an application. It is an inspired application. Or let me say this. In the same way that Israel is chosen and precious of God in the Old Testament, so the church is chosen and precious of God, as mentioned in the New Testament. Would you disagree with that? No, but notice he's using something that meant one thing in the Old Testament and he applies it to a situation because it is much in the same way. That doesn't mean that Israel is now the church or the church has always been Israel or anything like that. Just because they have similarities doesn't mean that you violate their identities. That's not the idea. Instead, you understand it as an application of what's taking place. How about this next one? A royal priesthood. For this one, uh, Mitch, Isaiah sixty-one six. There it is man, you're on it, but you will be called the priest of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations and in their riches, you will boast Exodus. Uh, let's see here. nineteen let Let's see that one. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And he's talking to Moses there at that point. But notice, it's used of Israel. Notice that Peter applies it to the church. Let me give you one more, just so it doesn't go crazy here, okay? A royal priesthood. For a royal priesthood, uh, or I'm sorry, forgive me, a holy nation. Uh, Let's not do that. We've already touched that one. A possession. Uh, Mitch, go to Exodus 19.5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Is the church ever told to obey all of his statutes and keep all of his covenants so that they would be his possession? The church is never told that. Israel is told that because it's a fellowship issue. The church is accepted fully by the blood of Christ. However, it is still used and applied in this situation. Is everybody with me? Anybody got saved yet? Okay, it's making sure. You guys still keep a sense of humor, please. Your time here is not wasted. Now, here's the reason why. Go back to your 1 Peter 2, verse 9. The reason why all this is true, look what he says. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our saving was for the purpose of sharing the gospel. We are to be talking to people about the excellencies of God. Now watch what happens here. Look at verse 10. Go over to verse 10, Mitch. For you were once not a people. Okay, now watch this. You were once, and think of it as two sides. You were once not a people, but now the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. Does everybody notice that those four designations that are given, and there's a contrast of not, and now you are, not, and now you are, does everybody notice that they're all in caps? Which means they all have quotations in Old Testament. Which means that us being diligent Bible, stu- Bible stu- sorry. See, I'm getting so excited, I'm speaking in tongues. So because we're diligent Bible students, we want to go through and we want to research every instance and say, well, how does this fit together? And so here's what we find. Not a people. Where is that mentioned at? It's mentioned in Hosea, chapter one, verse, uh, let's see here. And the Lord said, name him lo me, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Everybody remember the situation with Hosea? Aren't you glad that God's not working with us today like that? Hey, I need you to go marry a prostitute. Okay. That's weird. Somebody came into church like that. You think this person's crazy. We got to call the pound to come get him. That's weird. Right? But notice here, it's serving out an example. And when you have kids, their names are going to serve as an example. You are not my people. Is this spoken of Israel or the church in Hosea? Israel. How does Peter apply it? He applies it to the church. Everybody see that? So it's an inspired application how about the next one when it says here the people of god which one do we have for that mitch second samuel is that right or is it joshua or sorry judges judges 20 judges 20 the chiefs of all the peoples even of all the tribes of israel took their stand in the assembly of the people of god in the assembly of the people of god 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword israel here is called the people of god who they have 400,000 foot soldiers amongst them the people of God. Is that used of Israel or the church in the Old Testament? How does Peter use it? The church. How about the next one? You had not received mercy. Hosea 1.6 Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion. I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Is that about Israel or the church? Notice that Peter applies it to the church, the last designation. But now you have received mercy. The next verse, Hosea one seven, Look what it says. But I will have compassion, I will have mercy on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle horses or horsemen. Is that used of Israel or the church? It's used of Israel. How does Peter apply it? to the church. Notice it's an application. Now here's the thing. I'm done. But, but, what? Who who had the gift of of smart aleck? Hold the applause. Hold the applause that I'm done. I'm going to go home and cry in the fetal position and suck my thumb. That's what's going to happen here. But here's what I want you to get. You may sit here going, I don't understand anything you just said. That's okay. It doesn't mean that you can't understand that. Does that make sense? You guys saw that video when I was gone a while back. I made a comment in there. A lot of people talk about how dumb the sheep are, but that doesn't mean we have to stay dumb. God wants us to know him. And this is a basic rule of Bible interpretation that eliminates a lot of problems because here's the reason why. If you look in the back, and if you look in the Old Testament and you say, oh, well, it said not my people, since Peter quoted it in the New Testament, that must really be talking about the church in the Old Testament. Does everybody see why that's dangerous? If you read the church in the New Testament into those things in the Old Testament, there is no future hope in your eyes for Israel. And you know what that'll cause you to do? Oh, this would never happen. You will become anti-Semitic. We are talking about God's very awesome and valuable, promised, precious plan for the people of Israel where a remnant will be saved. There is no problem in that. But if we don't understand the use of Old Testament passages in the New Testament as either, okay, this is being literally fulfilled because it's talking about Jesus or the virgin birth or something like that, or... That it doesn't make any sense whatsoever and we need to realize that the New Testament author is applying it. It allows for Israel to be Israel, just like the literal plain normal reading would allow and it allows for the church to be the church, both being precious in his sight, but both having different plans that God has blessed them with. Does that make sense? That's worth studying your Bible over so that we know. So that we will have a proper God centered view of the times that we live in and how crazy and volatile the Middle East is. Our entire existence hinges upon understanding and interpreting God's word correctly. That's why this is important. Let's pray. God, I thank you for our time together. I thank you, God, for the mercy that you show us in your word over and over again. At one time, we were not your people. And now we are your people. And we are not Israel, and Israel is not us. But we praise you, God, that you've had mercy on us both. There is no reason for you to, but because of your loving kindness, you are gracious and you are good. Father, we may not grasp this concept up front, but I pray, Lord, that we would focus on it, pray about it, study on it, go over it and over it. Father, help us to understand. You desire for us to be known and the concept is really not that hard. It really does take some work on our part to know you. So I pray, God, guide us, lead us, help us, direct us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.